studying 1750 to 1900 of world history class with Mr. Lutz, where we'll tackle the Ottomans, the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Russians as they adjust to the shifting trends of the modern era. Industrialization and imperialism have been the trend of the last two episodes, and now we'll have to see how these four non-Western states are going to respond to these major developments. This episode is going to have a regional focus, so we'll begin with the Ottomans, we'll move on to the Chinese, we'll attempt to compare these developments with the Japanese, and we'll conclude our key concept connections with Russia. So, let's get going. Our last discussion of the Ottomans kind of focused on the heights of their power with the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, if you recall. And we talked about the expansion of the empire that was brought about by Suleiman the Magnificent. But if you recall, we also started to address towards the end of that episode the gradual disintegration of their empire. And that was beginning at the start of the 18th century. We learned of the issues they had with succession to the position of sultan never having really established a consistent policy. We talked about the economic slowdown that came not only with costly wars, but also the limits of their imperial expansion and the lack of trade network expansion beyond their immediate region, uh, like we've seen with Western European maritime empires really making that effort to go to go beyond the confines of their territory. We also saw that this presumed cultural superiority on behalf of the Ottomans was playing a role in their decline, as the conservatives were rejecting and limiting the influence of Western technology, like the telescope and the printing press. So Napoleon's 1798 invasion of Egypt is going to become somewhat of a turning point for the balance of power in the region. Within a year of his invasion, he's on his way back to France. If you recall, he's launching his coup d'etat in 1799 of the French government, where then he'd go on to become the first consul and eventually the emperor of the French Empire. So in the wake of his departure from Egypt, there's going to be a struggle that emerges there to unseat French authority, and it's eventually going to be, we talked about him before, Muhammad Ali, who was an Ottoman officer that would come to take control. Though he's technically going to be governing as part of the Ottoman Empire, Muhammad Ali effectively runs Egypt as he pleased. His early actions included building up and modernizing his military forces in order to expand Egyptian control throughout the region. To do this, he turned to the French military for inspiration and for military training from their officer corps. He called for mass conscription, just as the French had done in the wake of Austria and Prussia's invasion as well. And with this modern military, he's able to help the Ottomans maintain control over Mecca and Medina, But he also is independently going to take control of Syria and move into Anatolia, even intending to take Istanbul, only to have his plans thwarted by British intervention on the Ottomans' behalf. And what we're going to start to see here is that European powers are going to start intervening on behalf of the Ottomans to prop up their declining power in the region because they fear the consequences of not doing so. They want to protect this balance of power that exists in their part of the world, and they fear the consequences of letting the Ottomans fall 
what would that mean for this balance of power? So anyway, Muhammad Ali's reforms stretch beyond the military realm, and they're going to extend into the economy and into broader society. He's going to build more schools. He's going to work in more French influence into their educational system. Um, his government economically is going to seize lands from the peasantry in order to expand their production of cotton. And then this cotton can be exported to the industrial states of Europe, where it could be manufactured into textiles. Uh, he's going to begin to expand Egypt's industrial sector as well, though, and he's going to start to construct his own textile factories. But these economic reforms are really not going to bring Egypt into this era of significant growth. And it wouldn't be too long until the British were able to establish Egypt as a protectorate where they could manage its affairs uh, to enough of a degree that they could ensure their investments would be secured in the region, including the Suez Canal, which ultimately brings them in closer contact to India. They really want to maintain the stability of that region for their own benefit. So while the Egyptians are working to modernize and develop their state, the Ottoman Empire itself is really starting to lose territory to the Russians in Central Asia, to the Austrian Empire in the West, and states in the Balkans and Greece are beginning to launch successful nationalist-driven independence movements, with the Greeks achieving independence in 1832. Muhammad Ali, though technically subordinate to the Ottomans, was able to act independently of this authority due to his superior military and the fact that the Sultan had relied on Egypt for help in the Arabian Peninsula and in Greece. And a significant part of the reason these military problems are emerging is due to the corruption of the Janissary Corps, which had neglected its duties and was not really keeping up with this ever-evolving development of military weapons technology, especially in the West. And the weakening of the Janissaries meant that local leaders throughout the empire are going to start to raise their own armies, and they're going to start to act independently of the sultan's authority. The Ottoman economy is also suffering at the hands of increasing economic developments in Europe brought about as a result of industrialization. So we see imported manufactured goods flooding Ottoman markets and are available at much cheaper prices than what Ottoman artisans could compete with due to their lack of automation and production. The Ottomans are going to continue to export raw materials, but they're taking on more and more debt and are forced into taking out loans from European financiers to help develop their infrastructure for this modern era. The loans really start to become problematic because the Ottomans are unable to keep up with paying them off. Meanwhile, Europeans who would come to trade in the Ottoman Empire are able to secure what are known as capitulations for themselves at the expense of the Ottomans. So when we talk about capitulations, what we're really referring to are things like the right of extraterritoriality. And what this means is that foreigners living within Ottoman lands are not going to be subjected to Ottoman law, but rather the laws of their homelands. And what we're also going to see in terms of capitulations are going to be tax exemptions for the businesses that Europeans are establishing, among several other of these types of capitulations. Efforts to reform the Ottoman state are going to be launched by Sultan Selim III in the late 18th century to bring about reforms within the military and the government. And, and this is being done, of course, in the face of these military setbacks and these economic setbacks. Much like Muhammad Ali, he tried to do this along European lines as well, but he faced a wall of opposition from two major conservative institutions, the Janissary Corps 
and the ulama, or the religious scholars. Each of these groups feared westernization because it implied, first, a more secular society, which threatens the authority of the ulama, and secondly, it meant a reformed military, which could potentially take away some of the privileges enjoyed by the Janissaries. So the Janissaries and their conservative allies are going to revolt against these changes, killing fellow soldiers who reflected these changes, and they're going to lock up Salim III, and they are eventually going to execute him. Now, Salim's successor, Sultan Mahmud II, is going to continue on the path of reform, and he goes about it in a much more ruthless and ultimately more successful manner. Mahmud abolishes the Janissary Corps, and when they attempted to revolt, he had them slaughtered. This allowed for a much smoother, no surprise there with no Janissaries to stand in their way, it's a much smoother route to modernizing the military. Europeans then began to train the Ottoman military, and Ottoman soldiers began to study from a much more European curriculum. Tax collection by the military is now abolished, and it's going to be directly administered by state-appointed officials, and land grants were no longer being given to military leadership in exchange for their service. Now, an even greater effort was being launched beginning after the reign of Mahmoud II during the Tanzimat era that ran from 1839 to 1876. Education becomes increasingly secularized at the expense of the ulama's influence. New primary and secondary schools will be established, as are universities, and free primary education is established by 1869. Laws are going to be reformed in a manner that made them more suitable for Westerners to adhere to as they expand their commercial contacts in the region. There's now a commercial code, a penal code, a maritime code, and a civil code. All men of the Ottoman Empire are now considered to be equal under the law and in government employment as well as education. Now, not all Ottomans were thrilled with the efforts undertaken by these reforms. Conservatives rejected the notion of legal equality for Christians and Jews, and religious leaders felt that traditional values of Islamic society are being undermined. A new group called the Young Ottomans are going to emerge at this time, which also proved to be critical of the Tanzimat reforms. The Young Ottomans demand more government reform that would bring about greater decentralization and personal freedoms, as well as a constitution. An 1876 coup would put Sultan Abdul Hamid II on the throne, and although he first accepts a new constitution, within a year he reversed any sort of political reforms that he had established, even suspending the constitution and dissolving parliament, and he began to rule in a much more authoritarian manner. Although Abdul Hamid is continuing on the path first set about during the Tanzimat era, Many grow increasingly frustrated by his lack of governmental reform. By 1889, a group of Ottoman exiles living in Paris organized themselves as the Young Turks and began advocating for a constitution, parliamentary government, universal suffrage, religious freedom, and the development of a secular society. In 1908, they forced Abdul Hamid to accept a constitutional government, and they overthrew him one year later. The Young Turk era would be defined by puppet sultans, increasing Turkish nationalism, imposed on an increasingly resentful multi-ethnic empire, and more military losses. So, turning our attention now to China, if you recall the last time we talked about them, we had discussed increasing European involvement in the region, 
both for economic and missionary purposes, while the Chinese were generally reluctant to allow too much European influence into the Middle Kingdom. This relationship has continued on much in the same way by the end of the 18th century, which is becoming an increasingly frustrating reality for the British as they seek to expand their commercial presence in a land where they are restricted by where and with whom they are allowed to trade, let alone the fact that European manufacturers were of little interest to Chinese consumers. Eventually, the British are going to realize that selling of the highly addictive drug opium is going to be able to generate a favorable balance of trade toward British shores, and so eventually the East India Company expands the growth and cultivation of opium in India to ultimately sell in China. This trade grows exponentially in the first half of the 19th century at the expense of China developing a massively significant drug problem. Now, the Chinese began to crack down on the trade, and in 1839, Commissioner Lin Zexu was tasked with destroying shipments of opium as they arrived on Chinese shores. British merchants were outraged by the actions of the Chinese, and they soon pressed their government to take action. This led to China's defeat at the hands of the British in what became known as the Opium War, and the start of what has been called by the current People's Republic of China as its century of humiliation. The firepower of British ships and the technological superiority of British soldiers were able to easily defeat the Chinese. This resulted in the Treaty of Nanjing, one of many unequal treaties China would sign with imperial powers. France, Germany, the United States, and Japan, among several others, would sign similar treaties with China. These unequal treaties were called that due to the repressive measures they enact against the Chinese. The Treaty of Nanjing notably resulted in the establishment of British control over Hong Kong, the opening of more ports to British trade along the coast, and the right of extraterritoriality for British citizens in China, something that, if you recall, we had just seen as part of the capitulations from the Ottomans towards Europeans and their empire. The Qing were unable to outlaw the sale of opium any longer, and they could not raise tariffs on imports as a way to protect their domestic industries, and Christian missionaries were free to expand their reach throughout China. As much as China was facing external threats, they're dealing with seriously internal complications as well during this time. The Chinese peasantry had grown increasingly frustrated throughout the 19th century as increasing population pressures and growing inequality meant that land was becoming more and more unavailable or it was being bought up by China's economic elites. Frustrated not only by the mounting humiliation that's brought about in the losses of the Opium Wars and the unequal treaties, but also brought about by the mounting domestic issues as a result of the Manchu government, Hong Shuquan began a revolutionary movement in which he claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus and thus given a mission to establish a kingdom based upon the teachings of his Lord and Savior. The group he led would be known as the Taipings, and they would call for land and wealth redistribution, gender equality, and the expansion of their education system. In 1851, the Taiping Rebellion began and it would eventually grow into one of the deadliest wars in history, claiming approximately 20 million Chinese lives. The Taipings would come to take control of Nanjing, and they swept up the energy and enthusiasm from many rural peasants. The rebellion would grow, go on to threaten both Shanghai and Beijing before the Qing were able to take control, 
thanks to incorporating Chinese as opposed to Manchu soldiers into the military and the assistance they received from Western militaries. The devastation it wreaked upon the countryside crushed agricultural productivity and was visible for decades to follow. Now, in the wake of the Taiping Rebellion, the Qing dynasty realized efforts were needed to reform China amidst this tide of great change. The self-strengthening movement would emerge as the potential solution to the mounting problems. Reform was generally focused on improving the Chinese military through technological improvements and economic development by the improvement of shipbuilding, infrastructural development in the form of railroad expansion, and the promotion of heavy industry for steel and weapons manufacturing. At the root of these reforms was the desire to maintain Chinese cultural identity while attempting to absorb Western technological and intellectual know-how. However, these reforms only scratched the surface of real change in China as it did not encounter mass industrialization, but it did introduce enough Western values into Chinese society that would eventually serve to undermine the imperial system that had defined its history for thousands of years. Self-strengthening was stymied by continued foreign intervention in Chinese territory as the French, British, and Japanese continued to chip away at their territory. China became defined by what were known as the spheres of influence, which granted economic concessions throughout their lands to foreign powers. France, Britain, Germany, Russia, and Japan now each controlled railway development and mineral rights in various parts of China. Desperately, the Chinese attempted the even more urgent 100 Days of Reform program, which attempted to thrust China into an era defined by industrialization, a constitutional monarchy, the abolition of the corrupted civil service exam, and even more Western influence in the economy and medical fields. Chinese conservatives, led by the Empress Qi Shi, performed a coup d'etat of the emperor and rolled back any efforts at transformational reform. The conservatives then turned their sights on on the corrupting foreign influences that they believed had been plaguing China. The Society of Righteous and Harmonious Fists, or known to the Westerners as the Boxers, launched attacks on foreigners within China beginning in 1899. The Empress Dowager Qi Shi had supported the efforts of the Boxers, who set their sights on attacking Christian missionaries and Chinese converts to Christianity. The rebels had believed Western military technology would not be able to harm them, but a combined force of British, French, American, Russian, Japanese, and German troops destroyed the rebellion by 1901. China was weakened even further at the hands of the Westerners, and rebellions broke out increasingly throughout China as the people became even more angered by the direction their government was heading. And by 1911, a nationalist revolution was able to sweep aside the Qing dynasty and the imperial era in China would finally come to an end. Sun Yat-sen would attempt to develop a Chinese republic that would be defined by democracy, nationalism, and livelihood, signaling his intent on wealth redistribution. However, warlords carried the real authority in China during the early 20th century, and it would take time for the Kuomintang, that is the Chinese Nationalist Party, to consolidate governmental authority in the era. So switching our focus now to Japan, if you recall, our last discussion involving the Japanese saw them make the decision during the Tokugawa era to restrict foreign influence by forbidding any Japanese from traveling abroad and limiting contact from the outside to the Chinese and the Dutch. This pattern is going to continue for roughly the first hundred years of period five until a major development took place in 1853. 
This was the year when American Commodore Matthew Perry arrived in Tokyo Harbor with a fleet of ships and his guns pointed towards Tokyo, demanding that the Japanese engage in trade with the United States. Soon enough, several European nations had forced their way into Japan as well, gaining signatures on unequal treaties similar to those we have seen in China. Considering the context of the mid-1850s, we've already seen the conclusion of the First Opium War and the start of the second, and so the Japanese know the potential military threat in store for them if they attempt to resist. These new capitulations gave fuel to the fire of opponents of the Tokugawa shogunate, and by 1868 the shogun was deposed and the emperor was restored to his position of power. This marked the beginning of a new era titled the Meiji Restoration. Japanese society had witnessed economic hardships defined by excessive taxation, lagging agricultural productivity, and increasing debt prior to the Meiji era. Conservatives, defined by former samurai and daimyo, as well as nobility, realized their path to improve Japan's economic and political standing was through openly adopting and mimicking the industrial and military modernizations of Western nations. Japanese citizens were sent to Europe and the United States to learn about their industries, their governments, and their militaries. The political reforms of this era were defined by overhauling its social class system and reforming their government. Feudalism was abolished, and with it went the authority of the daimyo and the samurai, as control on the local level was now administered by prefectural governors. These samurai were no longer permitted to carry their swords or dress in their traditional manner. Rebellions then broke out among samurai throughout Japan, but they were quickly crushed. In 1889, a new Meiji constitution would be drafted that borrowed heavily from the recently developed German constitution. There was a monarch in the form of the emperor and a legislative body known as the Diet, but it was the emperor who held the real authority, as they could dismiss parliament and had the right to appoint the prime minister and members of the cabinet. Civil liberties were expanded, but they could be limited by the state and voting rights were moderately extended, though most Japanese could still not vote. The Japanese undertook an equally large effort to reform their economy. They set about improving infrastructure, so we're talking the railroads, telegraph lines, and shipping lines. We've seen this as a consistent theme in this chapter, and this is going to help facilitate trade throughout the land, as well as the spread of technological and economic development. The government invested heavily in education for economic development, and had kick-started several industries, and then sold the rights to these industries to several organizations known as Zaibatsus that became massive conglomerate-type organizations that specialized in the manufacture of several different types of goods. Mitsubishi was one of these Zaibatsu that was involved in a range of businesses, such as banking, real estate, heavy industry, insurance, trade, coal mining, and shipbuilding, among other things. What also drove economic development was private investment from abroad and heavy taxes levied upon the peasantry that even resulted in peasant uprisings against this policy that generated close to 90% of what the government used to spend on its efforts to reform during the Meiji era. With a reformed government, booming economy, an increasingly modern army, and stronger sense of national pride, Japan is now able to set its sights on developing itself into an imperial power. Japan's growing industry could no longer be maintained by the limited raw materials available on the islands, so they looked to expand. After the war with China, known as the Sino-Japanese War of 1894-95, the Japanese took control of Taiwan, known as Formosa back then, and the Liaodong Peninsula, 
located just to the north of Korea. This annexation was rejected by Western powers, including Russia, who feared the increasing Japanese presence in the eastern reaches of its empire. Eventually, Russia and Japan would come to war in 1904-1905 in what was known as the Russo-Japanese War. Japan had feared Russian expansion into the region that threatened its position, and the Russians were in search of a port on the Pacific coast that could help expand their economic presence in that part of the world. Russia's defeat at the hands of the Japanese signaled a momentous shift, indicating the rise of the Japanese and the now clearly evident decline of the Russian Empire. So let's rewind the clock to see what Russia's been up to since its defeat of Napoleon in 1814. The armies of Tsar Alexander I had driven Napoleon's armies out of Russia, and he chased them all the way back to Paris by 1815. Russian officers occupying the French capital gained first-hand experience while in France of a nation that had transformed itself from an absolute monarchy into a constitutional monarchy and a society that stood for an immense expansion of political and human rights. This would influence a group of military officers in Russia to eventually lead the December's Revolt in 1825, where they, where they attempted to overthrow the new Tsar Nicholas I and develop a constitutional government. A precedent will be set in this attempted revolt where the movement will be met with a ruthless, violent response from the Tsar's forces. In the wake of this attempted revolt, Russia continued on its path of imperial expansion and ventured into territories such as Manchuria, Central Asia, and the outskirts of the Black Sea in the hopes of gaining access to the Mediterranean. It was Russia's ventures into Ottoman territories nearest to the Mediterranean, including the Balkan Peninsula, where they would take one step too many and threatened to upset the delicate balance of power that had been so cherished by European leaders for several decades. By 1853, the Crimean War had broken out, and it pitted the Russians against a coalition of nations, including Britain, France, and the Ottoman Empire. If you recall back to our chats on Muhammad Ali, his ventures into the Ottoman territory were limited by European interference as well, because nations like Britain and France wanted to prop up the so-called sick man of Europe, that is the Ottomans, to maintain this balance of power. This war was called the Crimean War because it centered on the Crimean Peninsula, which juts out into the Black Sea. Russia was crushed in this war, especially thanks to the military superiority of the British and French, thanks to their industrialization, something that had not yet emerged in Russia. Russian troops could not be armed or transported in a way that would allow for them to compete with modern industrial armies. This forced Russia into a devastating and humiliating realization. They were behind the times and needed to change. The most significant reform effort involved the freeing of the serfs from their economic condition. This was not only argued for on a humanitarian basis, but it was also believed Russia was not economically modernizing because this system did not create any incentive for the elites of Russia to change. Serfdom had led to rebellions in Russia and kept its economic focus geared toward agricultural productivity. So in 1861, Tsar Alexander II made the Emancipation Manifesto, which ended serfdom and gave former serfs full citizenship, meaning they were now able to own property, but that land was now taxed by the government at a rate that was not sustainable for this new peasantry. Land redistribution was complicated by resentful peasants who believed they were entitled to land and collective ownership of that land also made reselling it harder. There was no massive undertaking to create a more representative government at the national level either. But locally, Zemstvos were created that elected representatives and the courts were reformed to reflect more recent developments in Western Europe. 
Freeing the serfs also had the potential benefit of providing a massive pool of laborers that could be used in Russia's new undertaking to industrialize itself. These efforts to industrialize were above all else state-directed as opposed to being dictated by capitalist entrepreneurs looking to start new businesses in order to secure profits. Sergei Witt was the government official who was handed the task of directing Russia's industrialization, and he began with the development of railway networks throughout Russia, including the construction of the Trans-Siberian Railway. He also created economic policies that would help to protect the development of new Russian industries, and he secured loans from countries such as Britain and France to help develop industry in Russia. As I'm sure you know, the industrial work life was all, not all that much better than what Russian peasants had been used to before. Working excessively long hours in the dangerous conditions we've discussed in prior episodes meant they were ready to consider dramatic change in order to reform their society in a manner that meant a potentially better life. The people fanning the flames of change in Russia were collectively known as the intelligentsia, and they advocated for different types of change. Some called for socialist revolution, where industry was to be collectively owned for the benefit of greater society, while others advocated for anarchy, where it was argued that the state needed to be destroyed completely before people were able to live in true freedom. Both groups were willing to use violent means in order to achieve their goals. Russia was also contending with various nationalist movements throughout its multi-ethnic empire as well. They responded to these movements through a practice known as Russification, which repressed cultures and languages that were not Russian. Eventually, terrorism would score a victory with the assassination of Tsar Alexander II, but this only resulted in further oppression at the hands of his son, Alexander III. Eventually, his son, Nicholas II, would come to take control of Russia, and though he's not a very skilled ruler, he too believed in the uncompromising authority that came with the title of being Russian Tsar. Internal dissent was bubbling to the surface in Russia, but instead of dealing with it, the government and military instead deflected attention by setting its sights in a war of expansion. This takes us to that Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05, which, if you recall, resulted in a humiliating defeat for Russian forces. So 1905 saw the end of the Russo-Japanese War and the Revolution of 1905, in which workers marched in the Tsar's palace only to be shot down by the Tsar's soldiers, akin to what we saw with the December's revolt. This event became known as Bloody Sunday, and it resulted in widespread violence and rebellion throughout Russia. These rumblings forced the Russian government to consider reforms to head off further troubles. It was decided to establish Russia's first parliament, called the Duma, but this body did not have any sort of authority that could potentially check the authority of the Tsar. Discontent remained in Russia, and in a bit over a decade, it would lead to revolutionary change. I don't know if it's fair to title this part for our current episode as quote-unquote complicated the narrative, because what I'm intending to do here is tie together multiple threads of these four different stories together into one common strand. Developments within the Ottoman Empire, China, Japan, and Russia all led to migrations abroad, notably to the United States of America. And I wanted to briefly touch on how all of this world history has an immediate impact on U.S. history because I think we've reached the part of the story where America is beginning to shift into the role of one of the prime actors on the historical stage. 
So between 1880 and 1930, over 300,000 Lebanese streamed out of their lands and headed west to the Americas. The traditional narrative explaining this movement cited Muslim Ottoman religious persecution against the Christians of Lebanon. Akram Carter, a professor of Lebanese diaspora studies at NC State University, has argued that although many immigrants upon arrival in Ellis Island cited religious persecution as what drove them across the Atlantic, this was in fact primarily done to engender sympathy from the authorities so they'd be more readily permitted into the country. He noted there's scant evidence of significant religious persecution in Lebanon during this time. He argues it was the lure of economic promise in the industrializing Americas that provided a pull factor for migration, while the push factor came as a result of competition coming from European industries that crushed domestic manufacturing and craftsmen in the Ottoman Empire, as we've seen. He also notes improved quality of life stemming from access to vaccinations that resulted in a near doubling of the Lebanese population during this time, and it put increasing internal economic pressures on a region that's already stretched thin by external pressures coming from the industrialized West. Now, in Russia during the same period, policies enacted against its Jewish population resulted in the migration of approximately 2 million people to the United States. Several government policies were responsible for these developments. The May Laws of 1882, for instance, decided that Jews were to be uprooted from their homes and forced to live in a region called the Pale of Settlement. This policy, enacted by Tsar Alexander III, was justified because the government argued Jews had been exploiting Russian society. This was a near 180-degree turn against the policies of his father, Alexander II, who had increasingly brought Jews into the fold of Russian society. However, the conservative backlash led by Alexander III also meant, as we've seen, increased Russian nationalism, which left Jews on the outside looking in. Eventually, more pogroms or organized violence targeting Jews were supported by the government, and Jewish homes were burned down, Jews were killed, and hardly any support was given for Jews to rebuild. The promise of what America potentially had to offer was very appealing, resulting in waves of migration at the turn of the century. Chinese migration to America began to pick up during the middle of the 19th century as the First Opium War and the Taiping Rebellion sent China into political, economic, and social chaos. It's also during this time when gold was discovered in California, leading to the gold rush, which sent men from around the world into the western United States. However, many Chinese also took up jobs on farms and factories in America, and they eventually provided a significant proportion of the labor force that helped to build the railroads in the American West. The American economy began to lag in the 1870s, and, the op and opinions against Chinese immigration had began to strengthen. Theories of social Darwinism only seemed to support the notion that the Chinese were to be considered inferior to whites and a threat to their economic livelihood. Caving to public pressure, in 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, and it marked the first time in U.S. history that a specific ethnic group was forbidden to immigrate to the United States. This policy would later move on to incorporate Japanese, Filipino, and other Asian migrants, and the Chinese Exclusion Act would not be repealed until 1943. Finally, the reforms of the Meiji era in Japan meant a radical transformation for those peasants living in the Japanese countryside. Not only was Japan shifting itself into becoming a more industrialized nation, it was financing these reforms through heavy taxes placed on its peasantry. 
These domestic pressures led many Japanese to consider a life outside of Japan, which offered potential economic benefits they felt were unavailable at home. By the 1880s, Japanese migration to Hawaii had accelerated, and from 1895 to 1905, about 130,000 Japanese had migrated either to the islands or to the western continental United States. Japanese migrant workers traditionally tended to be sons who could not inherit land, and as a result they traveled to Hawaii to work on sugar plantations under a contract for a set duration of time. After the expiration of their contract, some Japanese headed for home while others pressed onto the mainland of the western U.S., where they worked in industries like logging and mining. Steamship travel helped to facilitate much more flexibility in labor migration than we have seen before in world history, and the movement of the Japanese migrant laborers are evidence of these changes. This episode's document and focus comes from a supporter of the Meiji reforms in Japan named Fukuzawa Yukichi. In 1885, he published an article whose title can be loosely translated as Escape from Asia. As a supporter of Japan's desire to westernize and transform, you can understand why he looks at nations like China and Korea with disdain. This document's really interesting because it reveals Japan's current situation at that time, and it foreshadows the trouble to come in the 20th century as Japan grows into a considerable empire that the rest of the world must reckon with. I'd like to share some of the notable quotes with you that reveal his desire to break from the ranks of Asia and join with the West. I'll start with this first one. Quote, We have two neighboring countries, one being called China, the other called Korea. The people of these two countries are no different from us Japanese people and having been brought up since olden times in the Asian culture and customs. And yet, whether because they are of another racial origin, or because, while similar in culture and customs, differ from us in the main lines of their traditional education, a comparison of the three countries, Japan, China, and Korea, reveals that the latter two resemble each other more closely than they do Japan. The people of those two countries do not know how to go about reforming and making progress, whether individually or as a country, end quote. And you can see his implicit adoption of social Darwinism when he suggests it might be their race that explains why China and Korea are unable to reform. Here's a second quote. Quote, to plan our course now, therefore, our country cannot afford to wait for the enlightenment of our neighbors and to cooperate in building Asia up. Rather, we should leave their ranks to join the camp of the civilized countries of the West. Even when dealing with China and Korea, we need not have special scruples simply because they are our neighbors, but should behave toward them as the Westerners do. One who befriends an evil person cannot avoid being involved in his notoriety. In spirit, then, we break with our evil friends of Eastern Asia. End quote. This quote suggests Japan must consider transforming itself into an imperial power because to wait for the modernization of China and Korea would mean they would potentially fall to the forces of, of imperialism themselves. The tone is struck in this document for the path Japan will head down as they fight in the Sino-Japanese War, the Russo-Japanese War, and eventually leading all the way into World War II. So for my recommendation today, uh, I want to suggest checking out Google Arts and Culture. 
Because if you're a visual person who wants to see what these events look like, I, I especially looked up events like the Russo-Japanese War, the Boxer Rebellion, the Meiji Restoration, uh, and the 1905 Russian Revolution. I've got to urge you to search these events on Google Arts and Culture because you're going to get incredible images that are really rich in detail beyond so much of what you'll find from a typical Google image search. Um, a lot of the images are just a better quality, and you'll also get brief and sourced context behind the image, and it's presented sometimes in a way that almost feels like it's a museum on your computer. And personally speaking, there's so much untapped potential with Google Arts and Culture. I know it's something I plan to incorporate more in my classroom. So if you like seeing history in order to experience, I really suggest that you check out this resource. I think this is the longest episode I've ever done before. So I'm going to shut it down ASAP. Until next time, take care, everyone.